the New Media Consortium. The NMC is a consortium of more than 200 leading colleges, universities, museums, corporations, and other learning-focused organizations dedicated to the exploration and use of new media and new technologies. The red light is on. So uh, good afternoon, Larry and Rachel. It's time uh, for us to do another NMC conversation. And we're all glad to have with us our longtime friend, colleague, and NMC board member, Phil Long. Hi, hey, Phil. Alan and Larry and Phil. <laughs> hello, hello. Well, you know, uh, Alan and Rachel, I've just returned from two days at the New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts, where we uh, were part of this extraordinary experience. We convened a, a dozen visionary thinkers to to really look at new models for math and science education and um, quite a few interesting people there including our guest today who was part of that effort and I can say that both of us are really energized by what happened there Phil Long as uh, Alan mentioned is an NMC board member also the past chair of that uh, of that group and uh, he's traveled all the all the way to the States from his new post at the University of Queensland. So welcome, Phil. It's nice to see you on this side of the Pacific. Thank you. Thank you. It was indeed a pretty extraordinary experience uh, out in New Orleans at NOCA. And it was all that much richer because of the combination of, uh, of what they're trying to do in terms of bringing uh, a full f- liberal arts curriculum into a uh, currently a, a focused uh, performing arts um, high school context, but also just seeing the kids that were uh, that were uh, the students there and their incredible not only talent but trust and and respect that they have both for each other and for the faculty. Uh, it was pretty pretty extraordinary. So um, I'm pleased to be uh, part of that group, but more importantly, I'm pleased to be there and as, as uh, wearing the the NMC hat among among several others and. Uh, and looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, we were also a representative of, of Australia for that group. Indeed. In fact, I met a fellow Aussie while I was there. Um, had to come 15,000 miles to do it. But, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a, a, a really, I think, going to be informative for us uh, down the road because there are uh, interests in, um, in collaborations with uh, high schools in uh, our part of the world. And this will be a, uh, a really useful um, piece of, uh, of research in some sense in terms of how to bring the kinds of really um, dedicated, focused uh, work in the arts together with a full-fledged, rounded curriculum that takes into account that arts lens as its primary organizing principle. And I can uh, I can tell by both the way you and Larry talking that it was a real energizing experience, and uh, obviously that'll carry back all the way to Australia. So, um, can you give us uh, the kind of the synopsis version of kind of the work and path that led you to be in Brisbane at the University of Queensland? Well, let's see. The earth formed and cooled, and then the the synopsis is really that the um, that that there was an ongoing collaboration and continues uh, to be an ongoing collaboration between MIT and the University of Queensland um, that formed around the open source software development efforts originally sponsored by Microsoft Research in their support of the. Uh, iCampus project, which was funding to MIT at the time to build open source tools f- to transform education and, and student life. 
And uh, as part of that project, uh, we were fortunate enough to get some additional funding to uh, provide mechanisms for other institutions to download, take advantage, localize, install, and evaluate the applications that were coming out of that project. As we thought about doing it, I looked at different ways in which those kinds of distribution efforts and dissemination efforts had been described and organized, talked to colleagues at OCW, came up with pretty obvious a, a hub-and-spoke model for for collaborating whereby there was um, hub institutions so-called in different parts of the world that would in turn redistribute to their local communities uh, the software that we were dealing with so that we had a local uh, filter, if you will, and, and an interface um, to a communities outside of the U.S. The University of Queensland stood up in the early stages of this and offered to be that uh, redistribution point for Australia. And that began um, a relationship with them and then through them many other institutions in Australia over the coming – the last well, three and a half years or so. You know, Phil, I, I loved visiting Australia. I'm so envious that you're there. And, uh, and I had some fantasies of moving there when I was there, but obviously I haven't done that. But what's it been like for you to just uproot your life from the U.S. and, and move it all over to Australia? It's it's interesting. Um I don't know whether it's all – well, it certainly hasn't all sunk in yet, <laughs> um, in part because the transition has involved um, in the last six and a half months or so, um, three trips back and forth already. Wow. So so, um, so I'm only averaging about two months away at a time, it seems. <laughs> uh, so it's been a gradual uh, startup in that sense. Okay. Uh, but uh, but no, it's a, it, it it's a obviously we haven't quite recruited you down there yet, but we'll keep working on it. Uh, it is a, I think it is extraordinary. Listening. Yeah, I, shh, don't tell anybody. Hey, my hand uh, is up too. Okay. <laughs> it is an extraordinary uh, location. Uh, they're great people. A great deal of enthusiasm and entrepreneurial thinking. It, it reminds me both culturally and visually of um, of a almost like California to me at least we're given all of the eucalyptus trees and the and the beach and all of that uh, in the part of Australia that I'm located in Queensland and and specifically in Brisbane uh, so it makes me feel like California in the 60s uh, which is where I grew up in the first place so it felt kind of this immediate wave of nostalgic home feeling um, the university itself is like any large uh, contemporary university, R1 type university. It's a 30,000 plus student institution um, with uh, you know your nominal sets of, of various uh, disciplines and such organized differently than I'm accustomed. Um, they don't have departments. They have faculties. Um, and, and it is a European, UK style of, of institution, meaning that students arrive and essentially enroll in the discipline that's to be their major from day one. And uh, there is no liberal arts um, or common core curriculum requirement. Uh, they're in and out in three to four years, depending on the specific program that they're in. Uh, and so in that sense, it's it's very different. The longer I have been there, the more differences I notice. But uh, superficially, it feels very much at home. You know, Phil, um, one of the interesting things about your relationship with, with UQ is that you still have your position at MIT. And, of course, you you know, haven't walked away from the many things that you're doing um, in North America and even Europe. Um, and, for example, you've remained very active as an NMC board member. 
what are some of the challenges the, of working simultaneously on two or three continents, you know, that are a half a world apart? Well, I think the biggest is that you can never sleep. <laughs> uh, the, the, the problem, of course, is that when we're, we're anywhere from, uh, depending on which part of the U.S. you're talking about, um, 12 to 14 hours difference. Um, and so just as, as people are starting to go offline in Australia, people are coming online in the U.S. And therefore, um, if, you're, if you're trying to get work done in both hemispheres, um, that tends to put a little bit of additional pressure on you to, uh, to stay um, engaged in a way that even more than I would normally. Um, I think there, there are other fundamental uh, differences both in, in – um, in style of engagement and expectations, um, that uh, that are are culturally inspired differences. I mean, the Australians work hard, but they also are not nearly as 24 by 7 connected as as people tend to be in the U.S. At least in the small cohort um, at MIT and and colleagues deeply involved in the NMC are. So there is a little bit of a difference there. And I would guess the other thing that I would point out is is that um, it means working in this environment bihemispheric, as I'm starting to call it, is um, one that requires much more intentionality. Uh, you have to really be planful because you can be smothered by the, by the um, sense of need to be engaged all the time. And so you have to be much more intentional and pick your engagements carefully. Hmm. Uh, and you've, you've already touched on um, uh, in several questions already some of the uh, differences and similarities between um, higher ed and what you've seen at University of Queensland and here in the States. Um, maybe can you talk about maybe uh, more like in terms of the people you met about, um, have you seen any sort of, would you call them attitudinal differences in um, faculty, students, and perhaps uh, the way they look at also using technology? Well, there is some significant differences um, that stem from the difference uh, which we discovered in doing um, the uh, the Horizon report, but which which pertains to the ubiquity and cost of wireless communications. The cost of wireless communications in Australia is significant, uh, both wireless handheld devices and mobile phones, as well as um, mobile communi- or communications on the on the internet. Some I don't know how many years ago it was, but when the internet tariffing was introduced. There, there was uh, an agreement that that bits should be essentially taxed both directions. So you pay for bits coming and bits going, and as a consequence, everything costs. I mean, you don't you don't here in the U.S. It's much more typical to have a flat rate connection and you pay for a certain bandwidth. But what you put across that bandwidth or how much you put across that bandwidth is entirely up to you. Uh, and it doesn't come back to you in the in the monthly statement. There, it comes back to you in the monthly statement because you buy a quota of inf- of information that is a certain number of gigabytes of upload and a certain number of gigabytes of download. And everything you do is measured and takes from your quota. That has some particularly significant implications. And students, for example, it's not uncommon for a student to be doing things and expend their quota for the month. When you've expended your quota, what happens is you're not shut down um, what you are simply dropped down to modem speeds for your communications, uh, which is essentially pain. <laughs> so it's not an unreasonable thing for a student at that point to say, "I sorry, I couldn't turn in my homework because I've expended my quota." Do students ever like uh, like borrow other people's connectivity? They do, but it's not. I mean, everything is locked down because of you know open networks, which are 
common here. You you turn your laptop on someplace and you'll see the various access points popping up on your on your machine. Some of which are open, some of which aren't. There they're all locked down uh, because if you know if you're borrowing somebody's connection, you're borrowing somebody's quota, and it's it's real you know it's real expense in that sense. So it changes the way you think about the network. It changes the way work is done. Academic staff in the in the high bandwidth, if you will. Uh, disciplines, architecture, for example, um, con- are concerned and com- and complain that they can't do the kinds of of information exchange, exchanging of CAD files and things with their students uh, in the in a free way because um, when they're off campus, when the students are off campus, the quota kicks in. When they're on campus, the campus connection doesn't is not charged against their quota because they're running on the university network. It requires you to be much more conscious of actually the pathways that data follows because depending on which network your data goes through, there'll be charges or there won't. So it's a lot more complicated and is a consequence retards uh, or delays or changes certainly the way people think about uh, ubiquity of communications. Well, that's, that's something to think about. It's you know one of those things that sometimes we just take for granted that it's on and you have it and... That's Maybe right. that's, that's just not the case. So, Phil, um, you've spent almost the last year setting up the new Center for Educational Innovation and Technology and building your team over there. Can you tell mm-hmm. us what you're working on and what are some of the new projects that you're involved with at UQ? Sure. Um, it's an exciting opportunity, and that's probably the reason why I decided that it was worth the, the last – I'm calling it the last big adventure um, for us. And um, in that, it's an opportunity about – as you described, building that center and hiring people that I really want to work with. And uh, I have to say up front that I'm thrilled that uh, that Cyprian Lomas will be coming down with us uh, to be a, a co-leader at that center as a researcher. No, that was a, a very lucky, a very lucky uh, windfall yes, for you guys. It is an absolute <clears throat> privilege, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cyprian's terrific, and uh, and I'm looking forward to the kinds of collaborations and projects that we can do together. What we're looking to do uh, at this pace, this stage, sort of falls into three categories. We're looking at projects that um, essentially bring the research process into the learning activity, the learning community, that bring research tools into the classroom effectively, that um, look at the ways that rich media. Um, can be used more effectively in uh, classroom environments. And then, uh, then of course, things that involve that, both active learning and distributed collaboration. Those are kind of the four areas that, um, that currently define our, our specific projects. So I'll give you a couple examples. Um, in the area of rich media, one of the things that I discovered when after having been down there for a bit was there are a number of programs primarily in the healthcare field. Um, let's take one as an example, nurse practitioners, that have a, a practicum as part of their third year experience. And the students go off and, and at practice as a nurse practitioner uh, under the mentorship of a local uh, professional in a hospital or, or uh, clinical setting, generally quite distant from the university, sometimes thousands of miles from the university. And, and they practice for, for, for the bulk of the semester. Their main mechanism of communication and feedback with their mentors back at the university itself in, in Brisbane is uh, email. Um, they get a one-time visit from a, from a course supervisor to watch them in the field, but that's the only face-to-face engagement they have during this time. Now, as I said, there are local mentors who are not uh, members of the faculty but who are 
um, acting as as guides, if you will, uh, to help them uh, through their their practicum experience. But that's that's the the thread of the of the information exchange uh, primarily that takes place is through email and email exchanges. Um, so we are giving we gave the uh, half of the students in the class of this year's men, uh, practicum uh, flip cams. And they are actually visually recording their patient interviews and then sending those back to the clinical service director who is commenting on those interviews and giving them feedback on their videos that they're, that they're submitting. And then we have another half of the group, which is not doing that, which is doing the traditional face-to-face -face, uh, one-time visit and then, and then email exchanges. Um, and the intent is to see so – you know, it sounds pretty obvious, but there hasn't been a lot of real careful experimentation that says in what way does the implementation of having that video capability for for um, for seeing an interaction, commenting on it, really make a difference for particular learning outcomes. In this case, clinical procedures, uh, practice methodologies, etc. Um, that example should give you a hint that one of our primary activities there is to take a look at the learning and digital tools intersection from the perspective of experiments and try to collect data just as you would in any experimental setup to identify where impacts are, are being found and where they're not. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating stuff. I, you know, I'm just really looking forward to seeing where uh, all that's going to go. Um, to to turn the conversation uh, back to the NMC, it was uh, your suggestion, Phil, along with a couple of other board members, that um, the NMC begin to expand its international presence a few years ago, uh, which led to us uh, doing lots of things, including the Australia-New Zealand edition the Horizon Report, which was published last December. Um, we've had a couple of institutions in Australia uh, as members for a long time, Wollongong, um, the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology um, are, are, have been members for, for a good while. But now we also have, of course, your institution, your new institution, the University of Melbourne, uh, the University of New South Wales, the University of Technology, Sydney. Um, we understand the University of Sydney is, uh, is about to come on as well, as well as sister organizations like the Flexible Learning Framework and the Australian Learning and Teaching Council. Now that you've been down there almost a year, uh, what can you share with us about how the NMC as an organization might better serve our growing community of Australian members? Well, I think there's a, a great interest in um, in the, the energy, the vibrancy, and the diversity of the NMC community, which, um, which the, the colleagues in Australia can take advantage of. Um, Clearly, the, the Horizon Report is a significant uh, – has had a significant impact and is a significant activity for Australia itself, the opportunity for them to do some reflection on the kinds of things that are emerging in the technology space and where it impacts teaching, learning, and the creative arts was, um, was a valuable catalyst for a local conversation, uh, one which, of course, we hope we'll be repeating in the coming years. Um, but I think the NMC also – can work both with the existing um, uh, communities. Um, the, there are obviously organizations um, like Educause Australia, like um, uh, various other 
um, a groups that that already uh, provide some connection, some interface for your, for people working in different portions of of institutions on either the AV media space uh, kinds of domains or or more uh, academic technology and teaching domains. Um, so there's an opportunity for the NMC to both partner with those in a greater way, and perhaps down the road be more uh, a more independent and and uh, and and di- distinct entity. I think we'll have to be sensitive to how that that plays out, as one always wants to be in entering a new space. But I think that there is enough interest and diversity in the NMC community that is in some sense different by virtue of the the way in which the organizations that have been the primary members of NMC in the U.S., principally in the U.S., um, are different from the uh, EU-style, European-style organizations in Australia. And that that intersection of interdisciplinarity is one of the real strengths that the NMC brings. So I think that there are opportunities for a whole series of things like these podcast programs, uh, videocast programs, um, even even interdisciplinary uh, oriented training activities for um, for research topics um, that would bring communities together that are that are getting um, out of their silos and crossing boundaries in ways that is natural for the normal sort of NMC history uh, as a way of working, but not as common and not as normal and natural for what I think has been primarily the mechanisms that have been in place for the structures that uh, that exist in Australia. So I think there's some real, really exciting possibilities um, that uh, that the NMC is going to have to figure out how it's going to deal with its bihemispheric time zone differences. Yeah, well, I, I agree. I think there's just tremendous opportunity there, and. Um, you know, some of the um, immediate things that you and I have been talking about have been to look at uh, how mobile is being used down there is one yep. example. Uh, I guess we could go ahead and announce now, Phil, that you have agreed to um, join me as the co-principal investigator for the next edition of Horizon.au, which we're going to be kicking off very, very soon. We're going to try and publish it uh, earlier this year than we have in the past. And... Um, of course, we have um, recently released a Horizon K-12 edition. Uh, the, uh, an interesting part of the way that we approached Horizon.au last time was that we included the K-12 folks in there. It'll be interesting to see how, how that plays out in the Australian environment. But lots more um, down there, and we really, really look forward to working with you in the new Center for Educational Innovation Technology for many years to come. So thank, thank you very, you. very much, Phil. I appreciate the opportunity to continue that collaboration with the with Horizon Project. And, and there is one sort of organizing event down there um, that I think the NMC has a number of possible ways to engage with. And that's the introduction in the Australian um, discussion about what's called the National Broadband Network. Um, mm. The current government has proposed a fiber-to-the-desktop national network to cover at least 98% of all residents. That's a $48 billion proposed network implementation from scratch that would be in a public-private partnership 
with 51% owned by the government and the rest owned by private entities with bonds to be sold to individual citizens as well as uh, as well as industries and, and corporate um, uh, bond structures to help finance it. But what's, in, what's the opportunity for the NMC is to raise questions around how the implications of such a ubiquitous network could simply be a game changer in both education and community service and um, and uh, and economics as a driver for uh, creative industries. And that's why we love talking to you, Phil. You are just a font of incredible ideas. So thank you for this time. And Alan, Rachel, thank both of you uh, for being part of this conversation as well. It was great. Thanks, Phil, for joining us on the podcast. Thanks very much. Absolutely, Phil. It's always good to hear you, so uh, good day. <laughs> well, mate. <laughs> Crikey. <laughs> it's Friday, right? It Mikey. is Friday. I want to open a tall one. Yeah. Uh, that sounds very really good. I'm going, I'm going for a flat white myself. Uh, I miss them terribly. Yes. Well, we have to have you guys down on a regular basis, uh, not just virtually and and on the podcast distributions, but uh, to enjoy the sun on the face. Oh, that sounds great. All right, I'm taking my bag out. Take care. (laughs) See you guys. Bye Bye bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this new Media Consortium podcast. You can learn more about the NMC and access more content at our website www.nmc.org.